Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Hey, what's up, Centerpoint? How are we doing today? You're online, so glad you're with us. My name is Bryant, lead pastor here. Um, Man, if it's your first time, glad that you are in the house. We are at the tail end. It's like the end of the movie on this series, What Would Jesus Undo? So if you haven't been here, and I'm sounding a little hot up here, I don't know where I'm um, at back there, but if you're just joining us, I don't say this all the time, but you got to go back, uh, check it out, any podcast catcher, um, Centerpoint Florida app, but go back. I'm going to try to catch you up as best I can, but before I do that, in two weeks, um, I'm excited about a message I'm going to do. It's just a one-off called America in the Mirror um, on November the uh, whatever that date is. I should know this, but I forget, but it's in November. So anyway, be here for that. I know some of you are like, oh, crap, what are you going to teach on? You just got to show up. So America in the Mirror, that's happening in two weeks, and then we start a brand new series. So you guys ready to roll with part four of this series? I feel like you got some energy today, do you? Am I right on that? Like, are you going to talk back a little bit? Give me some energy. I don't have to wait for slow rolling golf claps like you're going to be fully with me. Okay, so here's what this series is about. Um, and I got I to gotta hone it in because of the cameras. But here's what this series is about is what would Jesus undo? And the reason I wanted to talk about this series is honestly because of my love for the local church and um, where I just want to see us go. I, I enjoy teaching these series more than any other series that I teach, but I love the local church. I'm a second generation pastor. My dad is an incredible pastor, incredible man. But here's the thing that bothers me, and we've talked about this some, is that I, I hate when people resist and walk away from the church, but the thing is I get it. Like I, I fully understand it, but I think the thing that really bothers me is when people walk away or they resist the church for things that the church should have resisted, like things that bother them that should have bothered us. Because as we said, I think in week one, really the only thing that should get in the way in terms of people connecting with the local church should be the Jesus thing. And I totally get that. Like if you walk away to go, man, the claims of Jesus are just kind of crazy. They're exclusive. Believing that he's God, your loyalty to Jesus, you guys are just over the top. I'm out. I can't handle that. I I totally get that. But here's the thing that I've experienced and what a lot of you have experienced is so many people walk away and it has nothing to do with the Jesus thing, right? Has everything to do with a million other peripheral issues that have gotten in the way and what I would call, in most cases, a bunch of unnecessary barriers. And so what we've said is this, and maybe if you walked away or you're watching us right now, you're listening to the unfiltered radio, is that what bothers you about the local church are probably things that should have bothered us a long time ago. And what we said is that when Jesus showed up, and I cannot over-exaggerate this, when Jesus showed up, he launched something that was entirely new. Up into that point when Jesus steps foot on planet Earth, everything was centered around what we've been calling temple model thinking, which really has been the blueprint for every religion of all times. The ancient Persians, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the ancient Jews, in every religion, all the way up into today, it basically has four tenets. This is temple model thinking. There's always a sacred place, and that's like the, here's where I go to meet with God, the sacred place where God's presence is, or I feel God, or whatever that looks like, depending on your background. 
It always has sacred texts or sacred oracles or sacred inscriptions. Every ancient religion always has sacred men. And among temple model thinking, it's always men. And they interpret the sacred text and they tell you what to do and what to believe and where you should go. And they have all of the power of inclusivity, exclusivity, really heaven and hell. And it always has sincere followers, or maybe because religion gets weird, you could insert superstitious followers. But that is every religion, and it's followed us all the way up into today. And when Jesus shows up on planet Earth, that was the thinking of the day, temple model thinking. This is what religion looks like. This is what religion ultimately, where it goes. And then Jesus steps foot and goes, no, no, I am going to undo all of that. The temple model thinking and everything that you grew up with, all of it's gonna go away and I'm introducing something entirely new. What we said is what Jesus introduced was an entirely new covenant, an entirely new arrangement and a way to approach God. When Jesus showed up, he introduced an entirely new command that would supersede and replace every other command. He introduced an entirely new ethic. And from this singular ethic, or really this singular verb, if you boil it down, everything was gonna flow. The whole Christian movement was gonna be based off of this singular ethic. And then he started a brand new movement. And no longer was it gonna be about a sacred place where you showed up and there was this priest or this go-between or this sacred man who was in between you and God. Now you had direct access to God and the holiest place that you will ever stand or the holiest building you will ever enter is never more sacred than the person to your right, to your left, in front of you or behind you because now sacred people are inhabited by the spirit of God and no longer is it a place, it's a people. And Jesus shows up to go, I'm giving you a brand new movement, a grand, brand new ecclesia, the church, an assembly of people for the world. Everything's gonna change. No more sacred places, no more sacred men. Now it's gonna be a new covenant, a new command, a new ethic, a new movement. And Jesus is like, if you take me seriously, it's gonna change the world. And if you know history, they took it seriously and it changed the world. Because here's what they understood that so often we miss, that the Jesus movement that Jesus introduced, it was far less complicated, but it was far more demanding. Like here's what you will find in every religious system, maybe with what you grew up with, is there's always places to hide in religious systems. There's always loopholes, there's always workarounds. It always produces hypocrites and you always have some option where you can just pretend, I don't think it says that. I don't think the text means that. I think my commentary says, how close is, is this a sin, is that wrong? There's always a place to hide where you can kind of have your thing with God and depending on what you grew up with. And I check off a quiet time and I prayed and I attended a service and then I can attend a service, walk away, treat my coworker however I want and it never even touches my conscience because I'm good with God. And Jesus shows up to go, that's not gonna be the way any longer. In the movement that I'm creating, there's no loopholes. There's no workarounds. Because come on, it's hard to find a loophole in what Jesus said that John wrote. Love one another. You're like, okay, but like, what does that mean? Jesus is like, okay, well, I'll tell you. As I have loved you, that's how I want you to love one another. You, it's hard to find a loophole and a workaround in that because as we've said, listen, you almost always intuitively know the answer to the question in every circumstance, in every relationship, in every situation, you almost always know the answer to the question. What does love demand of me? That is terrifyingly clear, isn't it? 
It's hard to find out. I'm not sure it really means that. I'm not sure it really says that. No, no, you almost always know the answer to that question. And as Jesus shows up, he's going, listen, that is the driving ethic for my new movement. And everything is gonna be commentary on and application of that one command. I want you to show your love for me by showing your love to other people. And I want you to ask this question in every situation, whether you can find a verse or not, or you forgot it a long time ago. What does love demand of me? That's the driving ethic of the Jesus movement. And come on, in the first century, I love studying this and talking about it, but that initial guy, those initial guys, that initial group of people, those men and women who embraced this, the movement exploded. And they had far less than we have. They only had two things. They had the knowledge of a resurrected savior that was so fresh in their mind. And come on, when your leader comes back from the dead, you don't really have anything to fear any longer. And then number two, all they had was scraps of writings. They, they had the Torah. They had some of the New Testament documents, but very little. The only thing they had was a resurrected Savior and this one command that we're to love other people the way that Jesus has loved us. And then they went into villages and into culture. And they loved the pagans. They loved their enemies who couldn't do anything back for them. And they went and they took this command seriously and people flocked to the movement of Jesus and they had no power, no leverage. They had no money. They had no influence. They just had this singular ethic, this singular command. And Jesus is like, it's enough if you take it seriously. It's going to change the world and it changed the world. And then around the fourth century, some stuff started to happen because around the fourth century, the Jesus movement was so explosive. And you've heard me talk about this so much that literally it upended the Roman empire and it became the legal religion of Rome in around the fourth century. And this is not intended. This was just a consequence of the whole thing. But in that moment in the first century, the, the Jesus movement or the Christians went from a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. Now, this is just not for today, but I'll just drop it. Every time in history, go study it for yourself. Every time in history that the church has gotten power, no matter what that power is in culture, political power, you fill in the blank. Every time the church has gotten power, the church has gone backwards. Every time. And suddenly they became this empowered majority. And what happened with nobody, nobody meaning to is that temple model thinking that Jesus undid. And for several hundred years, the church man was going like they had never gone before. Suddenly it started to creep its way back into the Jesus movement and they started mixing the two together. And all of a sudden, this thing that was so organic and so pure and this movement that was blowing up all over the world, suddenly it started to become about a sacred place again. And suddenly they started reinstituting sacred men. And suddenly it started to become a little more ritualistic and a little more complicated. And what do I have to do? And rule-based. And all of a sudden you had this mix of the Jesus movement and the Old Testament temple model that began to infiltrate its way in. And it's followed us all the way up to today. And then many of you know this. And then in the 16th century, you had the Reformation, which was incredible. And a part of the Reformation was this movement to say sola scriptura, which meant scripture alone. And what that meant was, and was so important, that the scripture would be the final say. It wouldn't be a hierarchy or it wouldn't be the church. The church wouldn't come along and say, listen, this is what you have to believe. Now, individual people had access to the scriptures and they could interpret what the scriptures meant on their own. And it was this incredibly important thing of, listen, no longer is this based around a man or around a hierarchy. 
But the only problem and the unintended downside of that is now the scripture were put into the hands of all kinds of different people with absolutely no context and no education in terms of how to interpret it. And so what they did, which you would naturally expect, is they began to look at the whole scriptures as equally applicable and equally inspired. And here's what I would tell you, and don't miss this because some of you will misunderstand me and then tweet me and it won't even be what I said. So just hang in for just a second. The scriptures are equally inspired. That's what we believe. So one of the things, one of the foundations our church stands on is that God moved authors to write the scriptures and then he preserved the scriptures as part of one of his promises and it is equally inspired from cover to cover, but it is not equally applicable. And I'll tell you why I know that. Because when I was 14 years old, my dad did not stone me to death. He wanted to, but he didn't do it. And so the scriptures are equally inspired. They are not equally applicable. So the scripture was put in the hands of people who interpreted the whole thing as equally applicable, not realizing that Jesus arrived on planet earth with something entirely new. And there was an expiration date on the old. And so because of that, they began to mix these two things and the ethic of love that informed everything for those first several hundred years lost. And ultimately, the Bible became a bat. And for some of you, with what you've experienced or what you're coming out of and why you're watching from a distance right now, or maybe you're in the room, what you have experienced around this movement that is so beautiful, this movement that Jesus created, was exactly this, that the Bible became a bat for you and ultimately love lost. Because temple model thinking began to infiltrate its way into the Jesus model, into the, the Jesus movement, and it began to dilute and pervert everything. And the whole reason I want to do this series is because we're a part of a generation that's been called to change that. Yes. We're a part of a generation, and if nothing else, then your neighborhood, in our city, and among an increasing number of churches because God has promised to preserve his church and it's gonna keep doing his thing all the way until Jesus comes back. We have been called in our generation to get that as right as we possibly can. And we have every reason to pursue that. So here's what I wanna do, I'm gonna do it as quick as I possibly can, is I, I wanna look at five things as I end this series, maybe end it a little bit differently than I normally do, five things that I think that we need to redefine as the church, if we are gonna fully embrace the movement of Jesus as we've talked about it over the last couple of weeks. And I think, I think if we renew our consciences around these things, because conscience is huge, here's what we said, is that your conscience determines religious reality, whether it's reality or not. And so we need to renew our consciences around these things. We need to, we need to rethink, we need to um, literally renew our minds as Paul writes about in Romans. And so here's five things that I think we need to begin to maybe look at again and redefine as the local church if we're gonna take this seriously. And here's the first one. We need to look at structure all over again because we have grown up with this mix of Jesus model movement and the, and the temple model thinking. But here's the reality of what Jesus introduced. The church is a body, the church is not a kingdom. The church is a body, it's not a kingdom. Jesus is with Pilate, and Pilate's asking him questions, and Jesus, is my paraphrase, is basically like, listen, Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, you'd be the one being crucified right now. 
He didn't actually say that's my paraphrase, but that was the implication. Jesus over and over again talked about the fact that I am coming, but I am not coming to build a kingdom of this earth. I am coming to build a kingdom that is beyond this earth. And then Paul came along and he talked about the kingdom of God. And all the while he planted churches and gatherings and ecclesias all over the Mediterranean rim. And every one of Jesus' followers is like, okay, listen, when are you going to bring in your kingdom? When are you going to overthrow Rome? When are you going to give us political standing back? When are you going to return the Jews to the golden age? And Jesus over and over again was like, I'm not doing that. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not wrapped up in power. It's not wrapped up in leverage. It's not wrapped up in a political movement. I have a kingdom that is absolutely other. And so Paul comes along to go, listen, literally God's bringing in a kingdom that is completely outside of this world. And now, you have been called on planet earth to be the body of Christ. You've been called to be a people that literally stands in the way, repping God to the world. You are his ambassadors to people who do not know God. Paul said it this way to a Corinthian church in the first century. He said this, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you, say that with me real quick. And each one of you is a part of it. Paul's like, listen, you're waiting for a kingdom. I set up a body. You're a part of that body. And you've been given a unique role to play in this body known as the church. Here's what this means. Listen to me, every single Jesus follower, because you decided to follow Jesus and maybe you didn't understand the unintended consequences that you immediately became a part of this thing called the church, whether you want to or not, whether you like it or not, it's just who you are. It is in your DNA. Jesus determined you are just a part of the body of Christ. I'm sorry, that's what's gonna happen until Jesus comes back. That's what it means to follow me. And here's the reality. When you are not engaged, you are missing something. And when you are not engaged, something is missing. In fact, fact, later on, Paul says this. He says, you are an indispensable part of the body of Christ. Meaning in some mysterious way, God has placed you where he's placed you, when he's placed you for a reason around the people that he's placed you in a gathering like this. And, And literally there are some individuals that only you can reach. There's some needs that only you can connect to. God has strategically placed you where you are. He uses the body reference all all throughout his writings. We're like, listen, everybody's got a different role. You're a foot, you're a hand, you're a whatever. And when you're not playing your role, you're like a formaldehyde-soaked, detached body part. Like, come on, play your role in the body of Christ. And when you are not, it's temple thinking. And I get it. It's what you grew up with. It was the unspoken idea that the church was here to serve you because you thought the church was a kingdom, not recognizing that you are the church and you've been called to serve her and to serve the people to your right and left that make up the church, which is not a building, it's a movement of people. And the temple model thinking is all about consume. The Jesus model, when Jesus showed up, was all about engage. It wasn't, I'm gonna wait for other people to move in my direction. No, you are a follower of Jesus with the spirit of God inside of you. You move in their direction. It was the temple model thinking that brought us this idea. Well, I'm just gonna stay at home, not because I have a virus. I'm just gonna stay at home because right now I'm liking to stay at home because I've been here for seven months and I love a latte on my couch and I love to watch this in my underwear. And so this is just a good deal for me. I'm rolling with this. It's great. I can turn it off with when I'm done and then on to football. So it's, a, it's the temple model that brought us to thinking, I'd rather watch it at home with no clothes on rather than engage the body of Christ to change my city and change the world. That is temple model thinking. And can I just 
how honest can I be? I usually save it for the 11 a.m. That's the PG-13 that never gets on the podcast at the 11, so that's just a heads up. Um, so can I just say this in, in love? I think that there's been so much in this season that has encouraged me wildly, and that may seem crazy to say, but I, I've seen the church do amazing things. I'm not just talking about us, but all over. It's been incredible. So some people that are so in tune with just kind of what's going on in their world and everything's falling. No, no, Jesus is moving through this season. A bunch of people are missing it, but... But I think one of the things that has discouraged me, though, is in this season watching people that following Jesus and serving the local church and understanding that the church is the bride of Christ and it literally, to quote Bill Hybels, it's the hope of the world, and that then so easily, you just give them a couple months and so easily they can disengage and reveal how consumeristic and weak their faith was. And that with not really much coercion, all of a sudden they're moved to this place where they've so easily given up on this thing that literally is at the heart of the destiny and will that God has for their life. And now they've settled into this little comfort zone and they're good and they're doing their thing and they so easily let go of the very purpose that God had for their life in this season of time and in our generation. Can you imagine if every Jesus follower would engage Can you imagine what would happen if every Jesus follower would engage, what would happen in families, what would happen in the community, what would happen in cities? Here's the second thing we need to redefine. Authority is to be exercised for the benefit of the led, not the leaders. When Jesus showed up, we talked about this a little bit in week one, but this is so huge. This is temple model thinking that has infiltrated the church 2,000 years later. When Jesus showed up, he turned the leadership paradigm on its head. You maybe know the story. Jesus is walking with his guys one day. They're behind him. I love these guys. I relate to them. And they're like, hey, like, who's gonna be greatest in your kingdom? Like, We would love to have some more leverage and power and influence and some more followers on social media. Like, We want a part of what you're doing. Um, like, We want some of this. We're thinking some money, book deals may come. Like, Who's gonna be greatest? when you like usher in your kingdom. And they're talking about this openly. Jesus hears them and then he turns around to address the subject or address the question. He says this, Matthew writes it down, Matthew 20, 25. Jesus called them together after this conversation of who's gonna be greatest? Can we like have a place in your cabinet? Can we be a part of your leadership team? And Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, talking about their authority. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And his disciples, this is kind of a, yeah, Jesus, that's what they do because that's what leaders do. This is a culture of might makes right. If you have leverage, if you have power, if you have influence, you leverage it over the people that you're leading. That's the benefit of leading. Like you're not a leader and I am. And so I'm gonna leverage what I've been given over you because you're just uh, whatever on the org chart. Like that's how leadership works. And Jesus' disciples are like, that's why we wanna lead. That's really attractive. And Jesus turns around and looks at them, I think eye to eye and says, not so with you. Not in my kingdom, not in my movement, not in my ecclesia. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, they need to be your servant. You need to be their servant. Literally, Greek translation, courier. And whoever, verse 27, wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus is like, I know that nobody's talking about this in culture, but this is gonna be the way of the Jesus movement. This is gonna be the way of the church. If you wanna be over, you need to learn how to be under. 
Can I just speak to you young leaders for a second that you want position, you want leverage, you want some kind of title, you wanna lead something? This is the way of Jesus. You need to serve under wherever you are and when Jesus is ready, he will give you more. But sometimes your talent can take you further than your character can keep you. And so if you wanna be a leader, you need to learn how to serve. If you wanna be a leader, you need to learn how to grind with no praise for a while and just do what you've been called to do faithfully right where you are. And Jesus, is, he shows up, he goes, listen, this is what it's gonna be like in my movement, and then in case they missed it. And we talked about this. Jesus, the night he was gonna be betrayed, is around the table, and he gets up and he takes off his robe, the sign of all of his authority, the sign of all of his power. Symbolically, he took it off, wrapped it around his waist and began to wash the feet of his disciples and began to do for them what none of them would do for each other. And then he got up from the table and he looks at his guys and they would never forget that moment and basically says to them, verse 15 of John 13, I've set for you an example that you should do as I've done for you. And I tell you the truth that no servant, that's us, is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And Jesus is like, if you ever find yourself with leverage, if you ever find yourself with any kind of authority, it just means that you wash more feet. This is the Jesus way. This is why as a church movement, listen, we are a body of Christ. We serve one another. It's one of my pet peeves. We've never had assigned parking spaces for anybody on staff. Just get here early and find a piece of grass. Like you don't need a parking space. In fact, we don't even let them do that. We're like, you gotta park out in the woods so that other people get prime parking spaces. This is not a kingdom. This is a body. And we leverage our leadership for the sake of other people. Come on, can you imagine what would happen if we did that? Can you imagine what would happen in our communities? I'll tell you what would happen. Everybody would wanna work for a Christian boss. Everybody would wanna hire Jesus followers. Everybody would have this idea of, hey, they have my best interest at heart. And I just want, if you lead anything, if you're a boss of anything in our community, we have many people in our gathering, I'm just telling you, you have been given your authority to leverage it for the sake of other people who are not you. That is the Jesus way. Third thing we need to redefine, marriage is characterized by mutual care and submission, not male domination. I could talk forever about this. This is such a big idea, but I can't exaggerate the emotion. I know that we miss it a lot of times, but Jesus steps into a culture where women were property, right? Women were a commodity. Women had no say. Women could not be a viable witness in court. Nobody would believe a woman. They were not considered full people. And then Jesus shows up, and one day Jesus with his guys, and and Jesus answers a question that they ask, and he levels all of the playing field. And I'm just telling you, I gotta move quick because I get so passionate about this. 2,000 years later, we are still reaching back into old temple model thinking and then misinterpreting two verses in the New Testament that has jacked us up. But I just, Jesus is with his guys one time, and they turn to Jesus, and again, this is my paraphrase, so don't look for this, but it's in there just in different words, but they basically looked at Jesus and they're like, okay, what do we do if we need to get rid of our wife? Like if she's not hot enough anymore or she just, I realized I made crazy and we're three years in and we just gotta go a different direction. Like how do I get rid of her and still be good with God? And as crazy as that is, that was a legit question for them because they're women. 
We can get rid of them anytime we want. We can offer a certificate of divorce and they have no recourse. They don't get anything. Um, whatever a man wants, a man gets. And so like, so Jesus, what do we do if she's not hot enough anymore? Or we just, we just need a new one. Like, how do, how do we go about that? Could you explain it? And Jesus looks back at him like, you don't want to know the answer. And it's funny, because here's the thing, because this is where we get into temple model thinking. What Jesus says, we love to go back and find a commentary. I don't think it actually says that. And I think in the Greek, and I think what it actually, no, no, no. Here's how you know how radical what Jesus said was. When Jesus finished his teaching on women, on divorce, on the status of women, all you need to know about how extreme it was was how people responded to it. If you wanna know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, watch what people did when they heard what Jesus said. And here, here was how people responded at the end of Jesus' little talk on all of this. This is Jesus' response to their questions about men and women and the status of women in marriage and divorce. He says, this is Matthew 19, 10. Here was the response of the people listening to Jesus. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, I know. Like, if you ever wonder how extreme it was, because when Jesus finished talking in this moment, men lost all advantage. Amen. And Jesus replaced ownership, you're with me, I'm, I'm, I'm liking it, <laughs> with partnership. And Jesus elevated the status of women. And I just wanna tell you, not because it's a new, cool theological idea, but because we have reached back into temple thinking, we have severely hurt women in terms of leadership in the church and what God has called and equipped them to do, whether it's women preaching, whether it's women leading. And I just wanna say this, the other thing the church loves to do is put women in a box that you can lead as long as you lead like this, but we'll attribute certain things to how men lead and we'll call it one thing with male leadership, we'll call it a completely different thing with female leadership. And that needs to end. Jesus has equipped the body of Christ and he changed the game. And if you wonder if I, oh, I'm not sure. I did a podcast on Unfiltered Podcast back a while ago where I talked about this whole subject and the two verses that we completely mistranslate in the New Testament. I'm telling you, Jesus ushered in something entirely new. He elevated the status of women. One of the things I'm so proud of is among my direct report leadership team is half of them are women that lead this church. And I love that because that's what Jesus has called us to do. Here's what Paul wrote in Ephesians. And this is so taken out of context so often. Ephesians 5.21, submit to, what's the two words? Submit to, one more time, one another out of reverence for Christ. Because we wanna pick verses, wives submit to your husbands. And anytime I have a guy sit down with me and start like, just, I don't know, start going with that verse. I was once someone, hey, hold on. Number one, who's that verse written to? Women. Okay, so it's none of your business, first of all. So like, you move on to the other verse. And then Jesus calls the man to submit in an even deeper way of, I want you to be willing to give up your life for the sake of your wife. And then, same Greek word, he says, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is, this is a Christian marriage. There's almost no good examples of them in the entire scriptures, but Paul gives us some nuggets here to go. If you wanna know what marriage looks like, it's looking at what Jesus has done for you and going, how can I do that for, for them? Literally, this is, this is the best explanation I've ever heard, that marriage is a submission competition. How do I put you first? No, 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 how do I put you first? And I know for some of you that's incredibly discouraging with where you're at, but I just wanna tell you, if you can ever get two people in that place, you will have an amazing marriage. 
That is God's key to what it looks like. It literally is, I'm gonna defer to you because what's best for you is what is best. And come on, can you imagine if we just did that one thing? Can you imagine if we just got that right? The fourth thing that we need to redefine is spirituality is determined by how well one loves, not how much one knows. Spirituality is determined by how well one loves, not how much one knows. And this is all over the New Testament. This is all over the New Testament. I love in Galatians, where it basically writes about, okay, these are the fruits of the spirits, or literally, this is what a spiritual person looks like. This is what emanates from a spiritual person. And here's what the author writes in Galatians. I love this, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the spirit is insight, knowledge, understanding of the deeper things of faith, and the ability to make people hang on your every word. I'm guessing you're just going with me because otherwise I'm unbelievably discouraged that you don't know that that's not a verse. That's not a verse. Because what Paul says is spirituality isn't even limited to being able to read. See, there's a problem with creating a version of spirituality that only works in developed countries. <laughs> the godliest people in a lot of cases that I've ever met knew the least. Here's what Paul writes. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, and self-control. You know what's amazing about all those? Those are all horizontal, not vertical. If you place your faith and trust in Christ, you're good with God. <laughs> he wants to make sure that you're good with the people to your right and your left. It's all about the you beside you. These are horizontal, not vertical. They're sacrificial. I love this. They're cross-cultural, and they're unnatural. This is why the Jesus movement is unbelievably simple, but it is far more demanding than anything else. And I just wanna say this, never be fooled by a man who knows a lot but does not love a lot. Yes. Never be confused by somebody who sits on a stage, straps a mic to their face, and then they can pitch their voice, and then they can bring it down, and they can make you hang on there every word. Do not trust somebody who knows a lot, but does not love a lot. Come on, we know this from history. Hitler split the world with a microphone. Do not trust somebody who knows a lot, but does not love a lot. The reality is the most spiritual person you know may be the quietest person that you know. We have got to redefine spirituality because we have a lot of fat cats sitting in seats that know a lot of knowledge, don't love anybody around them. And if Jesus shows up, he's gonna go, no, no, I undid that whole system. I don't care how much exegesis that you can do on the scriptures. I don't care how much doctrine you, don't, you know. I don't care how dispensational you are. If you are not loving, you are not a spiritual person. And I'll look down the aisle to the person who cannot find Leviticus to save their freaking life, but loves people well, that's the person who's going to have a front row seat in the kingdom of God. And then the last one, holiness is about being a part of rather than setting oneself apart from. Let me explain because you're like, I don't know. Hold on. 
See, the heart of the Jesus movement is not huddling up. It's not disengaging from the culture. And because we don't understand this, we wanna equate that with, you're not supposed to be like the world. No, I understand that. But what you find in terms of Paul's writing in the New Testament, you're not supposed to be like the world in terms of how you think, but you're to engage culture in a way that most of us, I, I still think, are not that comfortable. It's not about creating a weird Christian subculture. It's not about like, we should have a Christian basketball league and we should, we should build a gym so we can have a Christian basketball league and we should do Christian P90X and we should do Christian baseball. No, we're not doing any of that. I don't know what Christian P90X is, but what I do know <laughs> is that you need to go find a place to work out with other people that are nothing like you and you need to engage the world around you. You do not need a Christian baseball team. You do not need a Christian basketball league. You need to go to your Y and get a membership and start playing basketball with people and getting to know your neighbors because you've been called to engage the world. One of the things we're never gonna do as a church is huddle up a bunch of unnecessary stuff that keeps people from actually engaging the culture around them. That is the way of Jesus. And so here's the thing. The temple model thinking equated holiness with separateness. Amen. The Jesus movement equated holiness with engagement. Amen. Sacred meant engagement. And I get why we're confused by this, so just give me a second. We're confused by it because of Old Testament temple model thinking that has still woven its way in that we misinterpret. Because the nation of Israel was given a specific covenant that would eventually expire when Jesus showed up. And that covenant said, I want you to separate from all the people around you. I want you to be holy by remaining separate because I'm doing something very specific in this moment of time. I do not want you to be infiltrated by these pagan religions because eventually something is gonna happen that's gonna change the world. So you need to come out and you need to be separate from the world. You need to be other. That was God's plan for the nation of Israel. And then the nation of Israel birthed the Messiah. And Jesus showed up to go, I am undoing all of that. And then John could not have been more succinct in, in how he wrote it. John, who knew Jesus so well, looking back, he said this about Jesus' life, John 1:14. the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh. Like condescend into human flesh, sweat, saliva, walking on dirt, dealing with all the messes of this world into humanity, like condescending into human flesh. The word became flesh and made its dwelling, literal translation, pitched his tent among us. Like he came to be us, to be with us, but 100% God, meaning that in this moment when Jesus shows up on planet Earth, God decided not to stay separate any longer. Yeah. God, read the New Testament, decided to touch unholy things Amen. and unholy people. And he has called us to do the same thing. So it shouldn't be surprising when Jesus is gathering his guys right before he's about to take off. And he's like, listen, guys, I'm gonna build a movement. I'm gonna build an assembly. I'm gonna build this thing to the world. It's not gonna be on a sacred place any longer. You're not gonna have a priest. You're not gonna bring sacrifices. There's gonna be no more sacred men go between. Now you're gonna have direct access to God. And guys, never forget that the most sacred piece of dirt and building you ever enter is not any more sacred than the people that are around you. I am introduced something brand new. And they're like, okay, but where, when's the kingdom coming in? When are you gonna build the kingdom? When are you gonna you know, bring your political movement to, to bear to where the Jewish people are returned to our glory like Solomon? Like when, when's all that happening? And Jesus is like, my kingdom is not of this world, guys. And then he says this. So in light of that, go. 
Go and make disciples of all nations. I love this. All ethnic groups. We're like, but we're really kind of uncomfortable. We always roll up our windows that side of town. Like, no, no, I know. But now I want you to engage them. Now I want you to be where they are. Now I want you to walk in the direction of people, nothing like you. And then he says this, this incredible promise to every individual, every church that embraces this full on. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then Luke says this. When Jesus showed up, he undid all that was previous. No more sacred places, no more sacred men, no more sacred temple. And instead, the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The curtain was this dividing line between the holiest place in all of the universe. Only the high priest could go in there. It was the place where God's presence resided. It's where you met with God. It's where you felt the presence of God. It was the holiest place that you could imagine. And ordinary people could not go in there. Ordinary people could not approach that. Ordinary people could not be anywhere near it. And the moment that Jesus died, the curtain of the temple tore from top to bottom, signifying that God was not separating himself from the people any longer. And now it was not about going to a temple to meet with God. God had left the temple and now his portable temples had been called to go into all the nations, all the world to create a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational movement to the world. The temple now resides in you. You are a portable temple that's been called to go. And as holy as the holy of holies was, is now how holy you are in Christ because the spirit of God is within you. And Jesus is like, it is a new day. It is a new time. I'm changing the paradigm as hard as it's gonna be to let go of. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm calling you to go into all the world as ambassadors, as reps of this message that God has come and he's brought something new to humanity. I'm gonna end, but listen, never trust a church that's too pretty. If everybody's fine, 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 fine. If nobody's revealing any struggles, if nobody's dropping, they have a porn addiction in a men's group. If everybody's got stick figures bowing down to a cross every single day when they're driving in with their minivans, that church will die in a decade. We've been called to move toward the messes. We've been called to engage the world around us. And I heard this in seminary and I love it, but holy people have dirty hands. Like dirty is the new holy. So the holiest people right now, man, are people like literally that they're, they're changing the diapers of babies because they recognize they're a bridge to the gospel of Christ and that what they're doing in this moment is laying up treasures for all of eternity. And they're literally leading people from where they are to where Jesus wants to get them. And they recognize that holiness is not standing on a stage. Holiness is not deconstructing some theological whatever. Holiness is not the spotlight. Holiness is not how other people view you. Holiness is not their knowledge. Holiness is not any of those things. Holiness is moving in the direction of where people are and serving them the way that Jesus did. The holiest people in our gathering are people that are constantly walking toward the messes. They're not content to sit in rows they're not content to just lift their hands in worship. They ignite that worship by walking out of here and, and moving into groups where they are praying with people who are broken. And they're moving in the direction of creating friendships and having people over to their house that honestly confuses other Christians. And they move toward people who are nothing like them because that's exactly what Jesus did. Never confuse giftedness with holiness. And some of you, that's the reason you walked away from the church. 
But at the heart of our movement is a man who died covered in blood and saliva and your sin. And so I'm gonna end, but listen, what if we just got it right? What if we just got that partially right? No more God in me. No more just consume. No more, I check these boxes and now I'm good and I can treat people however I want. What if we really embraced all that Jesus introduced? Imagine if we all engaged. Imagine if we all went, no, no, I'm gonna put me second and I'm gonna put you first. What, what if we all recognize that, no, I, I, this is about mutual submission. I'm gonna defer to other people. What if we recognize that holiness is not how most of us grew up defining holiness. It is walking toward the messes. What if we engaged at that level? What if in every situation the filter became, what does love demand of me? What does love demand of us? What does love say that I should do? What does love inform and tell me about you? What does love demand? Because I'm just telling you, that brand of the Jesus movement changed the world. That brand of the Jesus movement can change the world again. And I'm telling you, it should characterize your life, our life, and our churches. And many of you, as we end, you are holding on to things that Jesus undid a long time ago. And the moment we let go and fully embrace the movement of Jesus as he defined it, as uncomfortable as that is, and it's uncomfortable, the church is almost irresistible because the message of Jesus is almost irresistible. Let's do that. Do you guys pray with me? Jesus, I thank you so much for what you've left us. I love your church. And Lord, I pray for some, like I, I get it. I'm thinking about friends right now. We have constant conversation and this is such an angst because they have been so hurt and so wounded by so many of the things that we talked about this morning. So I get the angst. I get why people have walked away. I get why people are disillusioned, but man, I pray for some of us, you would redefine and renew our consciences and renew our way of thinking and that we would embrace this again. And honestly, and I, I pray this with love, I pray that you would, you would move a bunch of Jesus followers who have bought into this thinking where they're gonna show up and sit in a seat or tune in today and then go their way and not engage at all. I pray that you would lead them to repentance. I pray you would lead them to change their life. I pray that you would lead them to recognize that other than raising their kids, the most important thing they're gonna do this side of heaven is engaging with this movement that you've called the bride of Christ. I pray that you would move in them. I pray that you'd move in us as a church because all of us, there's things that we have to let go of. And so I pray that you would give us clarity about even today, what you're bringing to the forefront of our mind that we need to have the courage to step out and let go of. And, and in a lot of cases to let go of and step out and then step into something else. So whatever that is, give us wisdom, give us clarity. And God, I pray, I'm believing you have created this this gathering, this movement for a reason in our city and we wanna change it and we wanna turn it upside down. And so I pray in this next season where I think we have more opportunity to do that than ever before, in the history of our lives, the church can take center stage. I pray that we would do that. And I pray that you would use us to ultimately lead people to the only one that saves and the only one that matters, and that's Jesus. And we pray this in his incredible name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? 
first, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family, maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.